This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Listeners to another Voices of Vapors um, podcast episode. This is where we t- uh, discuss all things tobacco harm reduction, including electronic cigarettes. Now, THR products have been subjected to local, state, and federal regulations and taxations every at every turn, and even some instances are facing prohibition. They're unique products, but unfortunately, manufacturers and retailers are not allowed to tell the public that these are actually safer. Um, public Health England and the Royal College of Physicians have um, found that these um, e-cigarettes to be 95% less harmful than combustible cigarettes. Approximately 3 million vapors have used electronic cigarettes to quit smoking combustible cigarettes. <laughs> Today I've got Dimitri Agrafiotis, who is president of the Global E-Vapor Consulting, um, executive director of the Tennessee Smoke-Free Association, and he's also a, ho- a host on Smoke-Free Radio, or hashtag Smoke-Free Radio. He's known nationally and internationally and his effort to support responsible regulation and efficacy of um, e-cigarettes is being less harmful since, as I said earlier, retailers and manufacturers cannot discuss this with the public. He aims to educate people on everything from general product information to the scientific commentary, as well as the regulatory issues at local, state, and federal levels. In Tennessee, he's been very successful in shaping the state to be one of the most friendly in the nation. Thanks for coming on today, Dimitri. How are you Thanks doing? Thanks for having me, Lindsay. I appreciate it. I'm doing well. Thank you. Awesome. Okay. So always my first question, how did you find yourself in, va- in the vaping industry and how did you find yourself to get so involved with it? Yeah, uh, just pretty much like everybody else's story. You know, my, my neighbors across the street, um, one day my wife noticed that they had you know something that looked like a cigarette in their mouth and they said, uh, what is that? Oh, it's an electronic cigarette. Uh, you know, at the time I was about 38 years old, I lost my father to a tobacco related illness. He died at 39 years old from a heart attack from smoking. So as I was approaching that, that age, I was trying to quit. So I tried, you know, all the available, you know, the patches in the gum and the chantix at the time, nothing worked. So my wife comes to me, she's like, Oh, I saw our neighbors. They had this, like this, this fake cigarette, you know, this, this metal cigarette. So I said, you know, what the hell can't, can't hurt to try. So we ordered a, we ordered a, cause my wife smoked at the time as well too. We ordered a couple's kit, which is actually four <laughs> stick batteries, you know, two for the man, two for the wife and 10 cartridges from V2 e-cigs in 2010. And, uh, you know, I mean, just as, as soon as I just read the instructions and screwed a little cartomizer on, I took one puff, I became an automatic switchover. I have not touched a cigarette, uh, ever since. So I, I quickly realized that this product was just amazing. I mean, I, I consider it the best uh, public health uh, invention of the last hundred years. So I, I uh, immediately just shifted to the internet to see if I could get more information. And I realized it's just not a lot of people talking about it because it's a small group like ECF and, you know, it's just a like, very small online community. So I figured I'm going to start doing some YouTube videos because at the time there's only just a few a handful of reviewers. They're all kind of younger in age as well, too, that wouldn't kind of relate to my demographic. So for that 40 plus, I figured I'd start doing some videos to help people, uh, discover, uh, vaping and uh, just kind of go through the journey with them. So that's how it all kind of started. Just doing some silly YouTube videos and it just expanded, expanded from there. And, and I quickly realized in 2012 that I think that was the first time that we ever heard of a, of some kind of a ban of these products on a local level. I quickly realized that this product is so disruptive that eventually the government's going to have to come out after it. You know, this is not a fad. This is not something that's going to go away. 
So I fell into that, you know, that that research and educating myself on how to to create, you know, different organizations and help with uh, with combating the misinformation that is out there. So I kind of, you know, shied away from the reviewer role and just kind of fell into the advocacy role. Uh, just the the, the, the industry kind of pushed me into that route. And uh, yeah, and we've been fighting ever ever since uh, 2012. It's funny because in 2012, when I started doing, I started doing this show called Vape Team on on YouTube, which was supposed to be like news and advocacy and science, you know, on vaping. A, a lot of people at the time within the community told me, well, you know, well, how much can you talk about that? There's no there's no restrictions on vaping. And if you fast forward, just just simply, you know, six years now ahead. It seems like we have some kind of a ban or or, or restriction on, on a daily basis. So it just kind of shows you how quickly the government came after it. Oh, exactly. I know. Right now, there's a hearing in Cincinnati for Tobacco 21, actually. Yep. So it is happening every day. Um, now, when you think Tennessee, I think Tennessee is kind of a conservative, good old country boys right next to Virginia. <laughs> and, um, and let's talk about the uh, Tennessee Smoke-Free Association. What happened and what were some of the regulatory actions that were coming down? Um, how did you guys work with it and what are you guys expecting in 2019 sure in in uh, we launched the tennessee smoke free association in april of 2014 it was the first independent state association in the country at the time there was only spada so-called spada chapters uh around around the nation and in, in very few states i just did not agree with that model i didn't like that model of being a chapter i wanted the, the state to have a strong independent state association that can connect to a federal level and help each other when needed. But a successful state association works independently. So, you know, I was in the restaurant business for 23 years. Every year I paid my dues to the Restaurant and Hotel Hospitality Association of Tennessee. My $3,400 every year. Never met the people, right? So I was just trying to do kind of the same kind of a model. Um, the first bill that came up at the time was uh, classifying tobacco as vapor, which they tried to do in early 2014. Um, so I, I quickly organized, got together with about 20, um, uh, legitimate businesses here in Tennessee. And I said, listen, I'm going to do this. If you guys support me and support me financially, I will step up and I will lead it. And, and thankfully they did. And, um, and ever since, uh, you know, that, that initial launch, we've had a core of really professional committed business owners in the state that carry this effort. You know, the leadership and the vision that I had can only be supported by the financial and the personal commitment from these vape shop owners when I call them to a call to action, which rarely happens in DC. It's happened a few times. Okay. So that's how we kind of got started. And then we quickly realized, you know, we have to grow this. We can't just become stagnant and complacent just because we beat the first bill that came came around. And we just continue to grow the membership and trying to create relationships with our elected officials here in Tennessee. If there's anything that I could always tell people is just to create relationships and let people know that you're here, you're legitimate, you're a business and uh, and you vote and and you contribute to 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 the economic impact of the state. So that's how kind of it, it kind of got started and then it kind of evolved into what it is now, which which we believe is one of the strongest state associations uh, in the nation, always been operated in the black, never never owed money. We aligned ourselves with some very, very professional players. our Our lobby firm here is one of the strongest in Tennessee. They represent some some really big clients like Jack Daniels and American Express, and we vetted them out really strongly before we we hired them. They're a full-time lobby firm, meaning that we've had them hired. We've got them hired 365 days a year, not just in session, uh, because a lot of the bill talk happens in the off season during fundraisers and golf outings, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so that's how it kind of got started. And you know, over the course of the of, of these last four years, we we have been successful in defeating 
uh, 18 pieces of, uh, of legislation that have come across that would be detrimental to vaping industry and, of course, consumers, because we take the consumer aspect very, very seriously. We've also worked a lot with the state, meaning that we, we helped pass an 18-plus bill here a couple years ago uh, before even Obama signed the law uh, for childproof caps. We helped them pass that here in the state as well, too. And, we've, and we expanded those relationships into with the Tennessee Department of Health and a few other health agencies in, in Tennessee as well, too. So we broadened the scope of this independent state association to be the voice of the industry and the consumer in the state. Looking to show off how much you care about freedom? Need a gift for someone? Head to the Heartland Institute store at store.heartland.org for T-shirts, posters, and books all advancing the freedoms you cherish. Grab a bumper sticker and show the world you believe in liberty. Find Heartland books such as Why Scientists Disagree About Global Warming, Power to the People, Nothing to Fear, and the Kid-Friendly Constitution. Grab a Heroes of Freedom t-shirt featuring Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and Martin Luther King Jr. Or get one of our always popular Don't Tread on Me shirts with Heartland's unique design. Those will be sure to start a conversation at your next barbecue or at the gym. Your destination for the freedom lovers in your life is the Heartland Store. Go to store.heartland.org and get shopping today. That's all, okay. Well, you brought up a really good point. Can okay? So you did the 18 plus um, for the, the use of vapor products, and then the childproof um, caps on the pr- packages. Can you explain to our listeners and um, how the vaping industry actually came out with these um, regulations? They were self-regulating themselves prior to any really major government action. Sure, I I actually read the statute here in in Tennessee with our lobbyists. And there was nothing on the books to prevent youth usage. I mean, anybody in Tennessee at 15 could go into a vape store. The definition was not there for vapor products. So when th- when this youth talk started coming about, which was in early 2016, and you know, kids vaping, it was actually the zero nicotine cloud fad that kind of went through kids. Yeah. What we wanted to do is, it was when we were talking to the legislators, you know, we have these these meetings that we do twice a year. I go up and, with my lobbyists and just kind of roam the halls of the Capitol and talk to various officials. And then I have a networking event once a year where I take all my members up to Nashville. We rent a hotel ballroom and we have a cocktail reception. We have all these politicians that come in and we talk to them. So we got to chatter at the time. Oh, kids, kids, kids. So we looked at the statue at the time with my lobbyists and realized there was nothing, nothing preventing. I mean, they had it under a tobacco category, but didn't have to say nothing about vapor products. So we we worked with the legislators here um, to, uh, and we actually worked with Big Tobacco and other companies as well too. We didn't just do it by ourselves because you need to have support for the entire industry to bring legislation that actually defines vapor products not to be sold to people under the age of 18 in the state. So we did that in 2016. At the same time, because we wanted to show that this industry, and we knew obviously that the government was making a federal child childproof law, but that's irrelevant. That it was just a, it was just a way of us saying we're going to go above and beyond what you're requiring for state, and we'll have childproof caps on these bottles just in case you know this comes across the hands of a, of a, of a minor. And it actually helped us tremendously to build strong relationships with, with these politicians and letting them know that we take the youth uh, usage serious as well, too. I mean, we certainly not calling it an epidemic, but we do understand that kids might be drawn to these products. And we want to assure that our members, meaning everybody that's under the Tennessee Smoke Free Association umbrella in retail in the state, takes this very seriously and they will not sell to anybody under the age of 18. Awesome. And how many members does the Smoke Free Association have um, as of, I guess, December 2018? 
Sure. Uh, currently, we have 49 members. 49. Uh, we started with, like I said, about 18, uh, 18 members. We grew all the way up to about 70. And, you know, over the last year, year and a half, some members have uh, dropped off. Some members don't pay. You know, I mean, running a state association is definitely not not an easy <laughs> task. Uh, and we understand, you know, the the industry and, and how volatile it is right now. So, um, but with 47 members, I mean, uh, 49, actually, we gained two members in, in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it might not sound like it's a huge number, but if you, you know, you're, you're approximately over a little bit 250 shops in the state, it kind of, you know, um, it kind of solidifies the percentage of people that are actually in, in probably way more in my state than other states that are willing to to uh, to help and to fight. So, I mean, it's a really good core of businesses. Some of my members have multi-stores, like Chattanooga Vapor Company has eight stores here. Mountain Oak Vapors has four stores in Tennessee. So the numbers kind of grow as well, too. Uh, from an economic economic impact, there's a lot of employees at these businesses. There's a lot of tax dollars. There's a lot of empty boxes, what we call vanilla boxes. If these businesses were to close, how much lease space would remain empty? So um, uh, the number of, of of members is only relative to how active they are and how much they want to participate. And, uh, you know, I mean, you've been up to D.C. with us. You've seen that the Tennessee delegation year after year for the last four years have had the, the largest amount of vape shop owners participate in Washington, D.C. So that kind of shows you the commitment that we have. Yeah. Now, and you guys do a lot of work with the Vapor um, Technology Association. Uh, can you talk more about that? Sure. Uh, I mean, uh, for us, like I said, initially, my, that was my vision, my goal. Let's create a very strong independent association and then let's tie into a federal organization, pay our membership, which we, we try to do with Spot at the time. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people did not like uh, my vision, uh, but uh, which is kind of funny because now the independent model is is widely spread across the across the country. But um I, what VP, what VTA brings, obviously, you know, for us, the biggest uh, advantage is the federal association. It's very hard for a shop owner in some small town in Tennessee to connect all the way up to the federal level. It needs to be done step by step and with the right process. And I think we're the great middle ground where the state association can get information from VTA on the federal level and pass it down to the members in a way that they can understand and vice versa. We can represent a you know voice of multiple small small shop owners up in D.C., meaning that we can bring the economic impact. Where you know just a small guy going up there and talking, there, oh, I have a small shop, doesn't really uh, carry a lot of weight. Yeah. So that was that, that's the most the, the most important I think piece of the puzzle. Their their Westfront Strategies lobby team in D.C. is just an excellent firm. I worked with them all the way back when they were with Spada, uh, and uh, and they they've done a great job representing us in Washington. Also, they're structured, you know, they're structured for this exact, you know, vision that I had, meaning that, hey, listen, if I need you, VTA, I'll call you. <laughs> if I don't need you, I'm not going to call you. I'm not going to bother you. Don't bother me unless you need me. If you need me in a district, for example, to shift a congressman or to shift the state legislator towards our side, VTA can give me the guidance and say, hey, we need to do some work on this district here. So I, I, I don't like them. I like them being together, but I don't like them stepping on each other. I don't want to step on VTA and I don't want VTA stepping on my state as well, too. Nobody knows a state better than the people that are running it and, of course, the shops that are in it. So it's very hard for somebody that's living in Illinois or in D.C. or in Florida to give me direction for my state. So those those a couple of things are very, very important. Uh, the, the third thing I think that they can bring is just this this great 
um, unity that they have brought among the state associations. You know, we have phone calls every couple of weeks that we all get, all the state leaders and the lobbyists get on a phone conference. We discuss the issues, we discuss strategies. You know, we have to absorb in this industry. What worked for me here in Tennessee might help you work, you know, in Alabama. If, if I see that something went wrong in California, how do I take that, those mistakes and try to make the adjustments where it's going to work for me? Also, we can share help, okay? I mean, I might be going through a legislative session here uh, uh, that doesn't really gonna, you know, it's not gonna really do anything. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in Tennessee. That means I can shift my focus and help Georgia or help Kentucky or help other states that are around us. So um, those are the three main benefits, I think, with working with Vapor Technology Association for, for our association. And I think all of our members have been, uh, have been very happy with, with this uh, membership. That's awesome. And one of the things I like about vaping and what I hate at the same time is I did this, the, the vaping industry, I mean, it's so inundated with local, federal and state, you know, efforts. And so you're right. You need these associations because you have to have, you know, representation at all levels. And it is impossible for if you're a vape shop owner and, you know, you're working 12 hour days, it's very hard for you to keep, you know, on, I guess, you know, I would onto the daily attacks and be informed of it. So, I mean, I think it, I think all the, the organizations do really good work as making sure, um, you know, that members and everybody's informed of what's going on. Sure. And, and, and listen, a lot of these, these business owners are just moms and pops operations. They, they, they were smoking. They quit smoking and vaping. They're like, oh, my God, this is great. And they opened up a business to help other people quit smoking. As, as, as where we are in 20, almost 2019 now in vaping, and we've progressed and innovated a lot. People should not forget where they came from. And even multimillionaires in this industry today probably started there a few years ago, meaning that, hey, I found this product and it worked for me and I want to help other people do it. So a lot of them don't have the business experience, don't understand the political climate, don't simply don't understand how law is being made in this country. Yep. And, and trust me, I didn't know either. I mean, I'm a political guy. I've always been a political guy, but not until I fell into vaping did I have to understand how to play the system yep. and, and how the system can work in your favor or how the system can squash an industry. So I think having somebody uh, or a group that's able to relay that information in a way that they can understand. You know, one of the, one of the things that I've seen over the years that's really, really just pisses me off is when 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 leaders of associations or leaders of organizations talk in a very condescending matter to these business owners, thinking like, well, why why don't you get this? This is common sense, right? And I know because I'm smarter than you. And that's not the right approach. I mean, they're just normal human beings that that you need to be able to connect with them in a level and try to make them understand that, hey, listen, you know, unless RJR, for example, signs off on this bill, we're not going to go anywhere. Right. Because that's how law is being made uh, and, and not and not in a way where, well, you should know that. So, yeah, absolutely. A, a good state association is a great step for to connect to these business owners. And it has to be done in a way that they can understand and and then join you in that fight. And and I think that we've done that successfully here in Tennessee. Yep, that's awesome. All right, so now we're going to go global. Um, so I know you've done a lot of traveling. I've seen you on Facebook. So let's talk about global e-vapor consulting. Um, what is the landscape for vaping outside of the United States? Um, and are countries, are they more or less restrictive? Sure. So, uh, so my company obviously is a consulting company. I work with federal with uh, various e-liquid companies here in the United States, and of course Chinese manufacturers, and and other, and whether it's going to be Europe or or the USA on regulatory framework, and uh, registering products and so forth and so forth. So. Uh, I, I also maintain a business in my home country of Greece. I have a couple of small vape shops and in, in a small distributing company. So the, the, the goal of global e-vapor consulting kind of started when, when I, I was with Mountain Oak Vapors, which is a big e-liquid manufacturer here in Tennessee. I worked with them for almost three years. I was the COO of that company. And then I decided to go independent. 
uh, and um, and expand, you know, kind of designing product, which I've always wanted to do with Phil Busardo. On you know, we joined up with Inakin. But the goal was to actually at the time help companies with the TBD. The TBD was being implemented, uh, which is the European Tobacco Products Directive. And I was trying to help companies get their products, their products registered with the TBD in order to continue their sale in the EU. And then it just kind of expanded with, hey, you know, I want to ship into Germany. <laughs> you know, what, what are the laws and what are the restrictions there? And since, you know, I'm one of these guys that constantly likes to get information and absorb information and research, I, I always have the answers. And if I don't have the answers, I'm definitely going to find somebody that's going to, to give them the correct information. What we're seeing, you know, in generally EU, which is, this, you know, the huge market right now for vaping, um, the stance is varied by country by country. So the TBD basically put a blanket, you know, over the 27 EU countries, and then they told every country, you can take this, this is the minimum, and then you can expand it. So depending on what country it is, for example, the UK is very, very friendly to vaping, but, you know, their healthcare system is completely different than the United States system. So they're encouraging their, their, their citizens that smoke to switch to this product. So we've seen a huge spike of vapors in the UK. In Germany, it's a little bit more different. Belgium is a bit more different. There's a little bit more pharmaceutical uh, influence there, you know, with Bayer and some of the other big pharmaceutical companies. So they've actually added more restrictions to the TBD in order to get your products in versus other European countries. But one thing is in common, Lindsay, and I think this is something that everybody has to understand. It all revolves around money. You know, it's not your health. It really isn't. Nobody cares if you quit smoking with vaping. It all revolves around money. So depending on the financial structure of that country, then you're going to see the adjustments made on how vaping is perceived and how it's being promoted. Greece, which is my home country, obviously it's a small country, but per capita we have one of the highest smoking rates in the European country. Smoking is that's where I started, obviously coming from Greece. But it's like a, it's you know, it's you you're born and the 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 doctor that's delivering the baby has a cigarette hanging from their from their mouth. So. Um, and in my country, it does bring a lot of taxation. It brings a lot of money in for the government. So they're taking a much more uh, friendly approach to the IQOS heat not burn product or the cigarettes than they do to vaping. And they're trying to pass laws to restrict it. In fact, you know, they have a they have a just a ridiculous 10 cents per meal tax on zero nicotine in Greece. That was one of the ways for them to avoid the short fuel, which is something that's very, very popular in Europe. So a bottle of 60, a 50 mil bottle of liquid of zero nicotine in Greece has almost seven and a half dollars taxes before the price of the bottle itself. So if you add the taxes and all that, it turns out to be like $30 for the consumer. Oh, wow. So uh, so that's generally what we're seeing. Just It's just all adjusted to how strong does a country depend on tobacco? Uh, taxation and, of course, the pharmaceutical economy that they have built from people getting sealed from tobacco, uh, sick from tobacco-related illnesses, and and that will give you a clearer picture of what's happening in the United States as well, too. Well, I'm really surprised now. I'm gonna correct me if I'm wrong. The only the snus is banned, like smokeless tobacco and snus is banned, and uh, well, not smokeless tobacco, but just snus in general is banned. And the EU corrected step in Sweden. absolutely. And they just lost uh, another lawsuit that they had. It was uh, it was in court a couple of weeks ago to to reverse that ban, and it, it was kept up. Snus is another product that clearly works for harm reduction. Sweden has one of the lowest uh, smoking rates, um, and and just in clearly attributed by all surveys, independent or not, that snus has contributed to keep people off cigarettes. So. Again, this is a, a product that will be a disruptive technology that could come into a European country and just shift the entire economic uh, outlook of it. So, yeah, of course, the EU uh, has banned it in, in uh, different countries, yes. Yep, okay. 
Um, another thing is you mentioned because you worked with you're working with some Chinese manufacturers. Can you talk to our listeners more about the tariffs that um, Donald Trump, President Trump had um, instated, and then how they're impacting the vapor industry? Sure. There is a, there's a, thankfully uh, a couple of weeks ago there there a truce did come uh, about. Uh, that what uh, Trump has said that he's not going to add the additional 15% to the 10% already um, that was due on January 1st. Uh, the additional tariffs, of course, um, uh, remain, and there will be uh, a 90-day period where they're going to, you know, reformalize their their trade agreement. But on you know the 25% tariffs, and, and and all of that does it translates to a higher price to the consumer, and and it kind of falls under the. This, I, I kind of kind of compared to the cigarette tax. So cigarettes by themselves are two three bucks if you just buy them. Most of the price that you pay, that you pay, in fact, on average in the United States, two dollars and seventy nine cents of every pack of cigarettes go to local, state, and federal taxes. Yep. But if the government decides to, uh, hey, you know, cigarette smokers, screw them. We're just going to tax them some more. We're going to increase the tax of the cigarettes. The tobacco company never loses because all they do is just pass that tax to the consumer. That's why the price of cigarettes keeps going up. The consumer is going to pay it. So this is exactly what we're seeing in this sector as well, too, with the, with the 25% tariffs, the price of these starter kits and, and vaping products in general uh, rises. And, and then eventually the consumer it becomes a little bit more difficult for the consumer to to try out vaping or to try vaping in general or for the existing vapors to continue to buy products. I think that a lot of people don't understand that in 1940 to 2018, the smoker has not changed. The needs of the smoker in 1940 are exactly the same needs as the smoker in 2018. It's a simple process. You take a little uh, stick out of a box, you light it on fire, and you smoke. But the vapor is a completely different consumer animal, right? It's just uh, it's it's driven by innovation, by new designs, by always trying to perfect their vape, and that kind of keeps the economy of vaping as well too. There's no reason for the vape shop to stay in business if they're going to offer the same device over the next five years. People are not going to gravitate towards that. So by by having these tariffs put onto the products. Um, all you're doing is just another slow death of the vape shop, which is the most vital vein in this this economy that we call vaping, and and it's deterring people uh, actually from trying. You know, back in 2012, 2013, it was very easy for us to sell vaping because most of the kits at the time cost twenty, thirty dollars, right? And and then a bottle of liquid would last you. 10 days, a 30 mil bottle would last me 10 days of 18 or 24 milligram. So you could tell a smoker, hey, listen, how much are you spending on cigarettes? $200 a month? Try vaping. You can spend $30, $40 a month and and you're going to save a lot of money. You don't even have to say, you don't even have to talk about health. The health would come later, obviously, if they quit smoking and they felt great. But that's becoming more and more difficult for us to say in today's age when you have to spend $120, $130 to get a setup and and then you're going through a 60 mil every three or four days. So it becomes a little bit more expensive to you to vape, actually more expensive than smoking in some cases. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, the, the tariffs are definitely not something that's wanted. I don't think it's warranted in our product. You know, I'm one of these guys that's completely anti-taxation on vaping. And, I, and sometimes I get some flack from the industry for saying that. But uh, I do believe that vape shop owners should actually get reimbursement tax breaks from the government <laughs> because that's they awesome. are they are helping people quit smoking. And in the in the process, they're alleviating the 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 struggle that, that that every state has in paying Medicare costs of tobacco related illnesses. So that's how extreme I am on taxation. But at the end of the day, any kind of tax that's put on this product is detrimental to public health, and that's the way that I see the tariffs as well. 
Yeah, that's a very valid point. And I like that idea of, of, yeah, subsidizing the vape shops, especially when you think about how much nicotine replacement therapy gets subsidized by Medicaid. Absolutely, really absolutely. And how much they're spending in, in just simply treating, you know, cancer and other, yeah. other diseases that, that come on to their citizens uh, smoking. And the number is really outstanding. It's just that the system is set up for that to benefit and hence why why they hate vaping. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Do you think it's inevitable that we'll um, end up, I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, the states love cigarettes is because of the master settlement agreement and the taxes, but um, the user fees. Do you think it's possible that vaping devices will be subjected to user fees in the near future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that, that, that and, and that's, it's going to be just another step to eliminate, you know, the, the majority of the industry. I mean, I expect over over 99% of this industry to exit from here if, if this continues the way that it's going. Um, there There has to be some way to subsidize that money that these states have grown accustomed to not only using for everything except tobacco yeah. prevention, but also borrowing on creating bonds, five, 10 year bonds out. Uh, there has to be something because global economies can collapse. I know it sounds just, you know, kind of out of a movie, but it's true. Uh, I think that uh, talking to an ec economist in one of the Tobacco Merchant Association uh, conferences a few years ago had told me that at the time Denver was was legalizing weed. He told me at the time that if everybody, if everybody in the United States quit smoking today, every state except Colorado would would bankrupt. Um, yeah. <laughs> so you can imagine that I don't care, you know, how much any politician will tell you that that they want people to quit smoking. Uh, it, realistically, uh, nobody wants you to quit smoking yep. because it would collapse economies. Exactly. I know. And OK, and now I like, really got to get to this point. Can sure. you explain to our listeners that vaping did not come from big tobacco? It's, it yeah. drives me nuts seeing every news story. Big tobacco, big tobacco. I don't even think big tobacco is still even really in the vaping game. But I know <laughs> well, they it will be after they buy Jewel. But, but uh, it, it, listen, yes, uh, the, vaping was is a consumer solution to a, a year-long problem, years, a centuries-long problem of tobacco, right? This was a, a consumer-led solution that we saw. We built. We built this without big tobacco around. We built it without huge companies. We built it without investors, right? So naturally, at the beginning, I, I think that I think 10, 15 years from now, you'll see some memos come out. I've actually heard this from people within the industry. I can't really say their names or what company it was. But I think once you know these documentaries come out 20, 30 years from now, you're going to see memos that big tobacco companies back in 2008 discussed vaping. Uh, and, and they all, all of them, said oh, it's a fad yep. it's just going to come and it's just going to go away yep. so at the time all the companies were investing as a heat not burn product and people don't know the icos has been in development for the last 15 years right so they invested heavily i'm talking about millions and millions of dollars into the icos and the glow that's out now from rjr and some other products that are going to come out in the future but quickly they realized by 2014 2015 that hey listen this is not a fad this is not going in there in fact this is just growing so some of them dabbed in, bought a few companies here and there, made their own product as well, too, with abuse and some, some Mark 10 and some other products that Big Tobacco came along. I, I think what, what your listeners should really understand is that Big Tobacco does not care how you receive your nicotine, whether you're going to smoke it, whether you're going to vape it, whether you're going to inject it. I don't care. They just want to have the monopoly. It's a corporation that's 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 answers to its shareholders, and of course, they want to create a regulatory framework that's going to benefit their company. 
they're not evil. They're just like any other big corporation in the United States. Every other corporation does that. They do it in the pharmaceutical center, in the food sector, in the technology sector. They all want to monopolize the industry. So as far as we're concerned, we are not walking on the same path with big tobacco. But we can cross some little side streets sometimes when it benefits both of us. I will tell you, and I've said this publicly, I don't have any problem saying it. In the last three, four years in Tennessee, I have worked with Big Tobacco in order to defeat bills. Uh, I've had you know, instances where we don't agree on something, but we find a common ground. And the, that common ground can be accommodating to both them and us. So we're able to work together. Once our paths cross, for example, in 2019, we, we just recently found out that RGR is not going to support uh, 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 they're going to they're gonna stop their support in trying to defeat Tobacco 21. So one of our allies on this particular subject is it was RJR. They, they were fighting it for the last four years. Now they're saying, well, we'll, we'll basically give up on T21. Yeah. And guess what? Jewel's saying the same thing. Yep, Jewel just uh, recently said that they're not going to support to fight T21. So that leaves us out in the cold as the vapor industry. Hey, look at us little guys over here. And why don't we want tobacco 21? Well, it's the silliest concept ever. You're telling, you know, the CDC data shows that kids start smoking at the age of 13. By the time they're 18, they're a five-year addicted smoker. And guess what? When you reach 18, wait, just smoke three more years. And then when you're 21, you're going to try less harmful products. Again, as a personal and ethics perspective of tobacco harm reduction, I'm always going to continue to fight it. But will we be successful in the future? Without these allies, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to win in, on this proposition. So, yes, vaping is not big tobacco. Big tobacco is involved in some small shape or form. But ultimately to them, as it stands right now, they can't compete. They can't compete with us. So either they're going to have to buy the industry and make it their own or they're going to have to create regulatory framework that's going to squeeze out the small guys. Yep. Nope, exactly. So, okay, that's a perfect thing. What can we expect in 2019 in Tennessee and, I guess, do you know, um, nationally and possibly globally? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, globally, we, 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 it's, it's a very, very hard proposition. I think with TBD2 coming in, the, in Europe, we're going to see some changes and, uh, and maybe a little bit more stricter uh, environment, especially with a lot of these short fields that, that people are selling, which is basically zero nicotine. People are adding their own nick shots inside, which I think is just a dangerous proposition all around. But when it comes to I'll start first federally here, I don't think we're going to see much of a change uh, this year. Except, uh, you know, when the uh, HPHCs are due in November of 19, I think this is a huge hurdle that a lot of small business owners will not be able to comply with, unfortunately. So I think by, by November 2019, barring any extensions, um, and of course, you know, the FDA hasn't given any guidance as always yet. Uh, but I think uh, that this is what we all should be discussing over the next 11 months is how do we all join forces to try to get through this HPHC um, November 2019 uh, deadline. I just don't see anything else federally and, and honestly, legally, that Scott Gottlieb and the FDA can do without congressional authorization. I know that there's a bill that was just introduced by by various, uh, um, I would say, pro-pharma politicians to for Scott Gottlieb to remove flavors completely from the market, but legally that cannot be done. So I'm not really concerned about that. Yeah. When it comes to the state of Tennessee, uh, you know, we're waiting to hear the chatter. The, the, the session is going to begin uh, in a few months. Uh, we did have a pre-legislative meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, in Nashville, and, and we discussed the possibilities. I'm, I'm pretty sure we had a T-19 come next year, uh, last year, which we defeated. I'm sure that's going to come back in some some form or fashion. And, uh, you know, we want to be proactive. Again, our hashtag in Tennessee is lead by example. And we've done this, you know, over the years. We were the first independent. We were the first to, to hire a full-time PR firm. 
that that represent the industry and we get positive press releases out in 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 the state of Tennessee and various cities. Um, so we want to bring a licensure bill. We want to bring a licensure bill that's going to separate uh, our vape shops from the tobacco category, call like alternative nicotine uh, retail points or something like that. That's actually once again trying to self-regulate the industry. We want to bring this bill that's going to uh, have every vape shop in Tennessee required to have this license to, to sell the products be inspected by the state in some form, whether it be the health department or alcohol tobacco enforcement, uh, to make sure that you don't sell the products to the kids and also legitimize our industry. I think uh, our, our, I think the biggest complaint that I have is that it's almost 2019. We've worked in an unregulatory field for the last 10 years, and we need to step it up and show, hey, we are we are we're a vital voting and economic block in in the state, and and this is a way of us contributing some money. Don't tax us, but we'll pay you a license fee and also give you the opportunity as a state to monitor us and see what we're doing and see that we're doing our best to keep these products out of the youth. And we're trying to help uh, the citizens in Tennessee um, quit smoking. That's awesome. Okay, well, where can our listeners find out more information about the Tennessee Smoke Free Association and Global E-Vapor Consulting? Yeah, so uh, tnsmokefree.org is our website. You can see all of our members there. Uh, you know, we're all volunteer staff. Uh, me, Nicole Cromley, Tiffany Everett, and Chris Lloyd, which are all the volunteer uh, leaders of this asso- association. So don't expect to have any really, really flashy website. <laughs> but tnsmokefree.org is there. It pretty much shows you the members. It shows you our accomplishments. It shows you some of the stuff that we have done. And also, I've tried to gather a lot of information on there for not only regulators, but also for your average citizen that's trying to get factual um, data on what exactly electronic cigarettes are and how it can help them quit smoking. I think this education is key. It's key with any kind of movement, whether it's political, economical, or even health. Um, Just briefly, um, last year, you know, Tennessee volunteers, huge. Football in Tennessee is huge, right? Mm -hmm. So about a year and a half ago, the Tennessee Department of Health ran an ad in the Nayland Stadium um, um, guide at one of the football games. Oh, 100,000 people there that said that e-cigarettes contain 15 more carcinogenics than regular cigarettes, right? Completely false, completely mistaken from from some of the statements from the CDC. So we requested as Tennessee Smoke Free Association to have a sit down with them. We brought our attorneys, they brought their attorneys, and we basically told them, hey, listen, we're on the same team here. TSFA and TN Department of Health, we're on the same team. We want people to quit smoking. So by you running these false ads or misinformed ads, I shouldn't call it false, uh, you're deterring people from trying vaping. And they admit it, that they made a mistake on on, on that ad. And uh, and we kind of opened up that door of communication. So education is key, and we try to do that with a, with a website as well, too. Global E-Vapor Consulting is just kind of lives in the cloud, facebook.com slash vapinggreek. That's where you can find me and message me if you have any questions. And, and of course, uh, you know, I own smokefreeradio.com. We have a variety of hosts that do podcasts there. Uh, every second Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, I do my podcast, but of course it's available on you know iTunes, Spreaker, pretty much every podcast uh, availability there. And, and YouTube, where I try to discuss things that are going on in the industry uh, and try to pass on some really good information for vapors. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much how you can find everything that we're doing. <laughs> you don't stop. All right, well. I don't. I don't. I can talk for hours when it comes to vape. And I, I guess that's a good thing and it's a bad thing. But I, I truly believe, Lindsay, one of the, and I love what you're doing with the podcast, is I truly believe that our industry suffers from lack 
of accurate information. Yes. And you can see this daily, right? you got a business owner that gets on Facebook and asks a regulatory question on Facebook. And then all of a sudden you have all these people that are answering that have absolutely no idea what is going on. Yep. And, and with that, and that has to stop. People should look to more accurate sources of information. One of the things that I do with my consulting company and, and one of the values that I bring to my clients and everybody that's a client of mine will tell you, if they have any question on anything, anything, like I want to give $5,000 example to Mark Block. Call me and I will tell you if it's a good thing or a bad thing. And I'll tell you, nope, take that money and just put it in your kid's college fund. Don't give it to anybody. <laughs> but that's really, really important is people to look to sources that they can trust to get accurate information. And I think once that happens and we get off kind of like this, everybody's in a, a, an attorney kind of mode. I think I think our industry will benefit from that and we'll be able to move forward in, in a common goal and in a unified voice. And is that you got any last words or is that a good way to end? I do have one more thing to say. Okay. I think that everybody, everybody that's in this industry, whether you're a vapor, a YouTube reviewer, a shop owner, a manufacturer, a distributor, I think everybody at some point in your journey through vaping had this pure naive thought that I want to help people quit smoking. I think if there's any possibility of us of winning, by 2022, which is essentially the death of the industry. So we got three years. I think you should go back and really take a look at yourself and say, what was my initial goal? If we all go back to that in 2019 and try to convert as many smokers as possible and get back to the true meaning of tobacco harm reduction and not the marketing hype and all the BS that has kind of grown with the vaping industry as well too. I personally think that this there's no legislative solution. I think that there's no regulatory solution. The only solution is to help more people in the United States discover vaping. Our numbers will grow, and that will give us the best possibility to win. Awesome. I think that's a fantastic way to end it. Well, thank you for joining me again today, Dimitri. Um, to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Voices of Vapors. For more podcasts, um, including this series, please visit heartland.org or search for the Heartland Daily Podcast in iTunes. For more information on e-cigarettes and tobacco harm reduction, please visit Heartland's alcohol and tobacco page.